Welcome back to the program. When we look at a tragedy like 9-11, we think of who and what we lost at that moment. We forget that a future is also lost, that many of those killed that day may have changed and reshaped the future. Certainly Danny Lewin, who was on American Airlines Flight 11, the first plane to hit the towers, had the potential to do just that. During his brief 31 years, Danny was a father, a soldier, a brilliant mathematician, and an entrepreneur. Along with his MIT professor Tom Layton, he would reshape the Internet into the robust system that was able to withstand the traffic and news of 9-11 itself. What else he might have accomplished in his lifetime is a loss not just to his family, but to all of us. A new book by my guest Molly Knight Raskin takes a look at the life of Danny Lewin. Molly Raskin is a graduate of Columbia School of Journalism. She's reported for numerous publications, including the Washington Post, the Baltimore Sun, and the NewsHour. It is my pleasure to welcome Molly Raskin to the program to talk about No Better Time, the brief, remarkable life of Danny Lewin, the genius who transformed the Internet. Molly Knight Raskin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Delight- a, a lovely introduction. Thank you. A delight to have you here. What got you interested originally, and in how did you come to know the story of Danny Lewin? Well, I actually was uh, I was in New York, on, just for a little background, I was in New York City on um, that terrible day on September 11, 2001, and I spent that year, the better part of that year, reporting stories on, as a, in my job as a journalist, reporting stories of, of lives that were lost that day. And it wasn't until a decade later, however, that I first heard about Danny Lewin. And, you know, that's what surprised me the most at first is that I, it had been so long and I kept thinking, why, ha- why didn't I hear this story? I heard so many stories, but this one is so remarkable. And it really came to me through a friend of a friend who called me up one day and said the 10th anniversary is approaching and there are some uh, friends and family of a gentleman who, who died that day who want to do a private tribute to him. And um, I started working on that and, and knew immediately that I wanted to tell his story in greater detail and write a book. And there was a documentary that was made about him. There was. It was a documentary that was made for his company, the company he co-founded, Akamai Technologies, which is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And on the 10th anniversary, uh, they've gotten together every year, you know, just his close friends and colleagues to remember him. And he decided on the 10th anniversary to do something a little more, um, you know, lasting, I guess, and to really spread the message of his legacy to their employees. And so I made the documentary and then thought, wow, this is the story. Um, it just grabbed me in every way. One of the other critical aspects of this story is that it is assumed, certainly based on the evidence, that he was the first person killed on 9-11, that he was stabbed on board the plane by one of the terrorists. Talk a little about that. Well, you know, I start out by saying, you know, we'll never know exactly what happened on that flight, of course, um, you know, in, in total detail. But what we do know from the facts that were gathered by the 9-11 Commission and then subsequently all of the anecdotal evidence that I gathered in reporting this book and speaking to his friends and family, it's uh, almost certain that Danny was the first victim of September 11th. The reason we know that is because he was on Flight 11 that morning and well before, well, about 15 minutes before the flight um, crashed horrifically into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, one of the flight attendants on the plane 
um, radioed down to ground control, actually two of them, very courageous, very brave flight attendants. And they were just relaying pieces of information about what happened on the flight. And at one point, one of them said that the passenger in seat 9B in business class, which was Danny's seat, had been engaged in some kind of a struggle with one of the terrorists on the flight and had been stabbed um, from fatally from behind. And so, you know, we don't know exactly what happened on the flight before that, but it's, there's a good chance he was the first uh, person killed and also that he did fight back and tried to um, stop the terrorists on the flight that day. Fighting back was, at least in the view of his friends and people that knew him, something that was, was expected. He was the kind of guy that would do that. Talk a little about that. Well, you know, it's, it's what part of what made him such an interesting person to write about is that he was this really complex character. I mean, he was this math genius um, at MIT who founded this incredible Internet company, but he was also physically really gifted. And he was an Israeli-American, and so he had served, like all, all Israelis, he was living in Israel at the time, um, went into compulsory military service at age 18 and served in... Um, and this is a really tragic irony of the story, one of the most elite counterterrorism units of the Israeli Defense Forces. So he knew how to hunt down and kill terrorists. He knew conversational Arabic. He knew, you know, how to sense trouble when it was around him. And so he got on that flight today not just as a, as a hugely successful business entrepreneur or Internet entrepreneur, but also as a trained soldier in one of the most elite units in the world. And so, you know, what really fascinated me is that, out, you know, notwithstanding the 9-11 commission evidence is that every person I interviewed for the book, and it was over probably over 120, 150 people, every single person said that without a doubt, they knew the moment they found out that Danny had been on the flight that day, that he had tried to fight back because he was just one of those people who never, ever sat back and let a fight go on if he knew that something was wrong. He always, always got up and fought back, you know, even if it was in the boardroom. And so um, that evidence to me was pretty compelling that he, he would have never sat by and allowed that to happen. And given that he understood Arabic, he was probably one of the first to understand what was transpiring aboard that plane. That's right. I mean, this is a really horrible part of the book to research and write um, because, you know, there were many times where I sort of thought about, um, I had to, to write it, you know, putting myself in his shoes and getting on that flight, which he had taken over, oh, 30 times that year. He knew all the flight attendants and people on the plane who also, also took that flight regularly. And, um, you know, he didn't speak Arabic fluently, but he, he knew enough to understand any verbal cues that those terrorists might have given before they got up and began the hijacking. And um, to, to imagine sitting there and, and suddenly, um, I looked at the flight manifest where Danny was seated, he could have literally reached out his arm and touched Mohammed Atta, who was the, mm -hmm. the horrible ringleader of, of the attacks. And so, yeah, I mean, he, he must have known very early. And of course, um, what he didn't know was that somebody was, one of the terrorists was seated behind him. Talk a little bit about his entrepreneurial success. He's not a household name, and yet what he contributed to the Internet is equivalent and equal to, in many respects, what so many others in the technology world that are household names uh, have contributed. Definitely. I mean, I would argue that if Danny were alive today, he would certainly be a household name. Um, and the only reason he isn't today, even, even though he tragically died at age 31, is because... 
the company he created, Akamai Technologies, um, is not something we hold in our hands every day and we see and we and we know the name of a consumer product. But it is um, what I like to call sort of the magic behind the way the Internet works so efficiently. So if you use websites like iTunes, Facebook, Amazon, the reason those sites stay live or part of the reason um, under great crushes of traffic every day is because of this technology that Danny Lewin invented with his professor at MIT, Tom Layton, who's, who's still the, the chairman of the company today. And he, uh, you know, he really, I, I talked to so many entrepreneurs and uh, technology um, innovators for, for researching uh, the research of the book. And all of them said, again, unequivocally, and this is even his competitors, you know, people who didn't necessarily like him as a person because they were in a business competitive relationship, said they had no doubt but that he had only achieved, you know, one small portion of what he could have achieved in his lifetime. And so I do think he'd be a household name today. I think he would have gone on to create more companies, to get his Ph.D. at MIT. He just had one of these people who, who from such a young age had so many big dreams, and he was going to accomplish them. There's no doubt. Tell us a little bit about his time in Israel. Why was he there? And You talk about the fact that he hated being there, and yet it turned out to be a great experience for him. Yeah, he moved to Israel. So Danny grew up in Colorado, in Denver, outside of Denver, Denver and had in so many ways, you know, really traditional all-American childhood. Um, his parents, you know, they went to synagogue and they, uh, you know, they were a religious family, but not, not extremely religious. But when Danny was a teenager, his father um, made a very abrupt, um, unwelcome decision to pack up the family and move to Israel. He had become sort of increasingly enamored with Zionism and decided that this was the right thing for his family. And, you know, Danny was just 14 years old and he was popular and enjoying, uh, you know, his year before high school. And he was furious about moving. I mean, you can only imagine moving to a country where you don't speak the language, you don't have any friends and family. You have to basically start life over again um, in a place that's not an easy place to live. Um, wonderful, amazing country, but, you know, tough to come into as an outsider. So, yeah, he moved to Israel at age 14. And, you know, whereas he could have gone uh, rebelled in, in a in a negative way, in an unproductive way, like a lot of teenagers might, understandably, he instead just went on this, you know, it's almost, I think, uh, I explain it like the intensity of Israel only fueled this fire that he had within him. And, you know, he really embraced the Israeli spirit of, you know, get it done now, because we don't know what tomorrow holds. And that became kind of his, you know, his way of living. And everything he did, he, he had to do it right away. And so Israel, he, he really came to love the country, love the intensity of the people, love the beauty, the natural beauty of the country, and identify himself as Israeli. And became part of, as you alluded to before, this very special elite unit of the Israeli military. Yeah, you know, this is one of, I sort of identify it in the book as one of the first times where he set out to just totally defy the odds. I mean, the unit that he was accepted into is called Sayeret Matkal. It's one of the most, as I mentioned, elite units of the Israeli army, perhaps in the world. 
And, you know, when he first told his friends, I want to be in this unit, um, people almost kind of chuckled, you know, good luck, uh, good luck with that. I mean, he wasn't Israeli born, he was only 18, and uh, up until the, you know, mid-80s, this was a unit that was hand-picked and known for these, you know, decorated warriors and politicians and leaders in Israel. And lo and behold, you know, he was so physically adept and also mentally um, so intellectual and so bright that he totally stood out among thousands of, you know, young men who were trying out for this particular unit, um, volunteer unit, and was accepted. And not only that, but two years later was um, elevated to the rank of an officer. And that was really, um, you know, for all the people I spoke to in, in Israel and in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, that was absolutely almost unheard of. And even after he was accepted, people didn't believe, you know, that he was actually in this unit. <laughs> he conveyed that same and carried that same can-do attitude into his business career. Talk a little bit about the founding of his company. Well, so Akamai was founded, his, his company, Akamai Technologies. Akamai is a Hawaiian word for clever. Um, it was, they came up with that during, you know, the height of the dot-com boom when all these companies were coming up with very clever names like Amazon and eBay. Um, but it was founded out of Danny's master's thesis that he wrote for MIT, um, a set of algorithms based in, you know, found the foundation of which was theoretical computer science and math, and extremely complex technology and software that he and Tom Lee and his professor at MIT developed to basically create this magic layer on top of the Internet that would allow data to move from one place to the other much more efficiently and sort of circumvent all the traffic that was slowing down the web in the 90s. And, you know, it's really remarkable how quickly this company took off. Um, you know, it, was, it was the height of the dot-com boom, um, which was 1999. It was a crazy time. Companies were going public, you know, with business plans on the back of a napkin. But Danny and Tom, with the help of some of their friends at the Sloan Business School at MIT, um, got together with their two co-founders, and they uh, put together this plan, and they started pitching investors. And really, by the time, you know, Danny was, uh, you know, in his late 20s, he, they created the company and took it public nine months later. And it was the fourth largest IPO of, of the dot-com boom in 99. And so he, he and Tom and lots of other students at MIT in their 20s became, you know, literally overnight paper billionaires and millionaires. Did he ever consider moving out to California and Silicon Valley? He didn't consider moving out there. Uh, he spent a lot of time in California and loved it. And, and Akamai opened an office there. Um, and they really were, you know, he was really interested in connecting with the talent in the Silicon Valley area and all of California. He traveled out all the time. I, I don't think he would have ever lived there because of um, the fact that he went back to Israel so often. So it just sort of added, to, you know, so many hours onto his trip. But beyond that, he was also really attached to MIT and the academic community there and had hoped actually before his death, tragically, to um, re-enroll in school and earn his PhD, which, which is what he came to MIT for in the first place. So he really loved that intellectual community that he founded at, at MIT when he first got there as a young student. And, he pro you know, it's, hard, it's impossible to say. Maybe. I know, I know his wife uh, early on was very keen on moving out to California. He was accepted into some graduate school programs there, too. So, 
One of the tragic ironies of this story is the fact that on 9-11, on, on perhaps the biggest day up to that point of traffic on the Internet, that he was the reason that it held up and was as robust as it was. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the part of the story that um, that I really couldn't quite wrap my head around. You know, it, it's like that saying, the truth is stranger than fiction. And, you know, so so it was already just this tragic irony that Danny got on the flight that day and had been trained in counterterrorism, tried to fight back. But the really incredible part of the story to me was that, you know, what Danny invented with Tom um, in Akamai really was put to its greatest, greatest test on 9-11. You know, that was the, um, anybody who, who, you know, was trying to get information that day remembers the incredible panic, you know, that we all felt. Phone lines were down. It was impossible to get information and find out, you know, this horrible thing that was unfolding. And, you know, that very day, uh, a lot of the companies that Danny had pitched, you know, as this young entrepreneur starting this company that people didn't really understand, but it sounded really good, you know, and he said, one day there will be this cataclysmic event that will, you know, result in a crush of traffic on the Internet, and you need our technology to help manage it. And there were a lot of um, big companies like CNN and, and a lot of the federal um, emergency agencies that used Akamai's technology. But that day, there were frantic phone calls to his office saying, you know, you need to help us. We need to let people know what's going on and we need your help. And, you know, his friends and colleagues totally soldiered through that day. The next three days, some of them didn't even sleep, you know, through their own grief because they knew that he would be so proud of the way his technology handled that day and helped people who had lost, you know, loved ones. And meanwhile... Akamai had lost the heart and soul of their company. How was the company impacted by the loss of Danny? I think it was absolutely, you know, I use the term in the book, gutted. I think it was gutted. You know, the, at the time, the company was already struggling because that was, you know, the bursting of the bubble in 2000, 2001. And the company was already struggling to maintain its business model with all of these e-businesses, you know, falling apart and going under so quickly. And trying to sort of steer the ship in a, in a new direction. And, and Danny was fighting, you know, in fact, up until the day before 9-11 to keep the company afloat. And then came 9-11 and the loss of Danny. And on top of that, the markets tanked even further because of what happened on 9-11. So it was, um, you know, I think that that really surprised me. You know, I did ask a lot of the, the people at the company who are still there, who were there at the time, you know, didn't you just, weren't you just tempted to just give up at that point? You know, you fought through those days and you could have walked away with a lot of money and every single one of them said, there's no way we would have ever given up. We were, they were miserable. They were grief stricken. They were fighting against people who said, you know, wrote Akamai off for dead. And they said, we can't do it. Danny would, you know, we can't let him down. And they did, you know, and today it's a multi-billion dollar company, um, very successful worldwide, thousands of employees. And I do think that they survived that because of his, uh, the spirit that he left behind, this fighting spirit that was really unmatched. What do we know about Danny's dreams for what he wanted to do with the company, other algorithms, other ideas that he had? What do we know about that? Well, you know, that's, um, again, you know, speaks to the question of wh where would he be today? And I think it's a question that, that actually really, you know, haunts 
so many people who knew him because the question just became, you know, what could he have done if he'd had more time? And he had big dreams. I mean, I loved hearing from people. Uh, you know, here he was, the, the the head of this multi, you know, billion dollar company that was was succeeding, and he had achieved so much by age thirty one, and yet he really wasn't satisfied, and not in the terms of financial compensation, um, but he had these big ideas. You know, he always people described him as somebody who went straight for the most challenging problems. And, you know, wanted to just chip at the things that everybody else, you know, couldn't. And so he was interested in, you know, this wide variety of things. I mean, people at MIT had told me, like I said, he went back, um, re-enrolled to get his PhD. So it might have been some some set of algorithms that were, you know, um, made history in academia and in this very, you know, um, uh, sort of abstruse, esoteric world of computer science on a, on a theoretical level. Dreamt of starting a new company with um, some folks in California. Um, he wanted to go back to Israel, maybe get into politics. So it's hard to say, but, you know, I think he he really could have done something incredible. And, you know, what I really loved even is uh, a couple of his friends told me that he was interested in the concept of infinity and exploring that maybe in sort of an academic setting. Um, and to me, that was so fitting for someone who had this incredible sense of, you know, time passing and getting things done quickly. So that would have been really neat to see if he'd done something with infinity that, um, you know, sort of was like a breakthrough in the academic world. You quote somebody as saying that he was the first casualty of the first war of the 21st century. You think that's true? I do. Um, yeah, that's his, his best friend, Marco Greenberg, who's still, uh, he's working in New York City today and, um, and misses him every day. He's a large part of the reason I was able to do this story because he shared so much and he was really a best friend, best friend of his for, for many years from when he was a teenager on. But, you know, in the book, I do use the word he may have been because from a journalistic perspective, you know, I wrote the book as a journalist and the evidence that I gathered factually could not substantiate saying, you know, unequivocally mm-hmm. he was the first victim of the first war. If you ask me as an author and uh, you know, someone who got to know him, I believe, very well um, from a writer's perspective over the course of, you know, the two years I spent researching him and his life, I would say absolutely so. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, what the history books say, you know, I don't know. But um, I would say, yes, he was, definitely. Molly Knight Raskin, the book is No Better Time, the brief, remarkable life of Danny Lewin, the genius who transformed the Internet, Molly, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was, um, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.